God has imprisoned all in disobedience, that God may be merciful to all. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I find the Bible to be a rather peculiar thing. This collection of texts that we come back to week after week, waiting on a word from the Lord. Uh, the Bible is both familiar and ubiquitous. Some of the stories it holds we've heard hundreds and hundreds of times before, but it's a weird book. It's full of these strange stories, contradictions, surprises, unexplained impossibilities, intriguing and the supernatural, heroes doing horrible deeds, poems that puzzle us. But even for the strange new word of the Bible, this text, the text that Hal just read for us, is very weird. I confess, I've read this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome dozens, if not hundreds of times, and every time I come here to Romans 11, I don't know what to make of it. I think these words can both leave us scratching our heads, and they can also make us sigh in affirmation. They can excite us, and they can terrify us. God has imprisoned all in disobedience that God may be merciful to all. What in the world does that mean? A few weeks ago, I stood here in this very pulpit and I shared during a sermon about my love of words. I love words. I love words in the way they sound like puzzle and puddle and punctuality. I love how certain words, the meaning can change just the way that you say the words. And I also shared about my love of churchy words. I can't get enough churchy words. Those words that we keep locked up in the vault here at the church and we bring them out on Sundays and then we lock them back up. But I think the thing I love most about churchy words is how often we use those words and we have no idea what we're talking about when we use them. We drop these churchy words on Sunday and they go in one ear, they go out the other. And I love that because in the ecclesial lexicon, I get to be our dictionary. I get to share with all of you what these words actually mean. Case in point, during vacation Bible school just a few weeks ago, we were gathering every evening with the children, and they would come here into the sanctuary, would sit down here in front of the altar, telling them stories of the Bible. And on our first night together, without giving it much thought, I looked at all the kids and I just said, do you know what this room is called? I mean, this big, big room, do you know what we call it? And bless their little hearts, almost every kid said, yeah, Pastor Taylor, it's the sanctuary. I said, yeah. Do you know what that word means? And they all just stared at me blankly. I said, sometimes we, we have this special cloth up here on the altar, and we always have a word, and sometimes the word changes. Right now it says, alleluia. Sometimes it has another word, an old word, a very ancient word, a very special word, sanctus. When you say a word like that and kids hear you, they all, without prompting, go, Sanctus. Sanctus. I said, it's a Latin word. It means holy. So the sanctuary, this Sanctus place, is just a holy place. And most of the kids kind of nodded in affirmation. One little girl raised her hand. And she said, I'm confused, Pastor Taylor. So what do you mean you're confused? It's a holy place. She said, yeah, but there's no holes in the carpet. That's a dad joke if I've ever heard one. <laughs> words are important. The words we use, the meaning behind those words are far more important than we give them credit for. 
Not only because words have the power to build up and destroy, but words without words, we cannot understand the world that we're in. You can only act in a world you can see, and you can only see a world that you've learned to speak. We can only know this as a holy place when we have the language to articulate that that's what this is, that we have come here to do something different than everything out there. The words we use are important. So here's another churchy word for you. Perhaps the most churchy word of all, Jesus. Jesus, do you know what the name Jesus means? I think more than a few of us here would be able to say, oh, Emmanuel, that means God with us because we sing about it every Advent. But Jesus, do you know what the name Jesus means? It means God saves. That's what the name Jesus means. God saves. There's this theologian, a uh, British theologian, his name's Michael Green. He translated, translates it not as, G, as God saves, but God to the rescue. Can you imagine if your name was God to the rescue? What kind of expectations would be on you? God saves. Well, how does God save? How does God rescue us? Through mercy. Through mercy. Were it not for God's mighty mercy, we would have dispensed with the likes of Christmas and Easter a long, long time ago. All of this, the Bible, the prayers, the singing, the, the reading, the listening, all of it crumbles and falls apart were it not for God's mercy. We are surrounded by mercy. We begin with mercy. We end with mercy. God has mercy on us. God says yes to us. God wills to be for us. Against all odds, God is for us. And it is against all odds because God should be against us. God should say no to us, but God doesn't. God is not against us. God is for us. That's what mercy means. And mercy has been the defining word since the very beginning of the Bible. It goes from the very beginning to the end, from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. God has mercy. God has mercy on Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, on Moses, on the people Israel, on David and Solomon, all the prophets, all the priests. God has mercy. It's the, all the parables Jesus tells, all these stories, they're about God's mercy, whether it's the parable of the publican and the Pharisee, the good Samaritan, the lost sheep, it's all mercy. And Paul takes all of this, building in his letter to the church in Rome, he's able to take all the scriptures together, and then he says, God has mercy on all. Can you believe it? On all. Do you know what this means? It means, if God has mercy on all, that each and every one of us here can say today, I am one of God's all. God has mercy on me. God will have mercy on me. It would be a travesty if any of us would leave today thinking, well, Paul wasn't talking about me. I mean, God certainly couldn't forgive me for what I've done or left undone. No. There is nothing, quite literally nothing, that can ever separate you from the love and the mercy of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's predisposition toward mercy is so strong that God is willing to die for it. But there's even more. Because if God has mercy on all, then perhaps we must repeat in our heart of hearts today that God also then not only has mercy on me, but the person in front of me and the person behind me, the person to my right and the person to my left, the person I look forward to seeing every Sunday, the person whose name I forget week after week after week, the person who lights up my life and the person who drives me crazy. God has mercy 
on them. The good and the bad and the ugly and the beautiful, God has mercy on them. How odd of God. Karl Barth about this text says, the one great thing from which we must deliver ourselves is to withhold God's yes from anybody. There is no one outside the realm of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. No one. And yet for as amazing as God's grace is, as, as majestic as God's mercy is, there's another churchy word that we can't skip over. Disobedience. Mmm. That's a mouthful. Disobedience. God has imprisoned all in disobedience that God may be merciful to all. What does this mean? I think we, all of us, in ways large and small, in ways seen and unseen, we're all prisoners of one sort or another. We're prisoners to sorrow that lingers long after a loss. We're prisoners to resentment for the sad situations of life we find ourselves in. We're prisoners of habit, the good habits, the bad habits that control our lives. We're prisoners to illness and age and worry and anxiety. We're prisoners to all sorts of things. But with all of them, there is the hope, the possibility that one day we could be free from those prisons. That we catch glimpses of the sky, even in those prisons, and we know that maybe there's hope that one day those shackles will no longer be there. Many of us can look back on our lives with hindsight, and we can see prisons from which we've been delivered before. Maybe God can do it again. But Paul says there is one prison that no matter how hard we try, and no matter what we do, we can't get out of it. That there is a set of chains we cannot break. It's disobedience. We cannot, we do not keep God's 613 commandments. We don't even keep the 10. We don't love God with our whole heart. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. Many of us don't even love ourselves. We are, to use the language from the old prayer book, miserable offenders. Do you all like being told you're a miserable offender? Do you like being told you're disobedient? Have you ever noticed that we only ever use that word in reference to children and pets? We only use the word disobedience when we're talking about someone we have power over, like children and pets, something we have power over, someone we have power over. But in God's kingdom, each and every one of us is disobedient. Again, back to Vacation Bible School at the end of the week, you know, we've taught all these kids these songs and they've gone to do science experiments and we've been teaching them all this stuff and on the final night we gathered here in the sanctuary, they put on a performance for us. They were singing songs and playing the glockenspiel and then we went outside because we were going to have popsicles and ice cream out on the lawn. We wanted to celebrate this week of Vacation Bible School. So we dismissed all the friends and the families and the kids outside to the lawn and we shared with them that we have popsicles and ice cream cones for everybody. But you can only have one popsicle or one ice cream cone. One and only one. And all these dutiful kids, they all got in line to get their popsicle and they're all sitting there and they're so excited. And like five minutes after it started, I saw a kid take her popsicle and while it was melting in one hand, she put it behind her back and she got in line and got a second popsicle. And again, I mean, we're talking about dessert here. It's not a big deal. Who among us as a child could, could resist the temptation of a second popsicle? But five minutes later, while I was having a conversation with one of the families from our church, I noticed a father 
make his way over to the dessert table, having just thrown away his first ice cream cone. And when no one was looking, he knelt down behind the table and snuck a second ice cream cone. Again, we're talking about popsicles and ice cream. But I think it's indicative of the state of things. Because it's not just about the ice cream and the popsicle. It's about our community, our neighborhood, our world, our families, our places of work, our places of school. Why are we like this? Why do we do this? Why are we so selfish? Why do we choose again and again and again to do the things we know we shouldn't do? Why do we break the rules? Well, Paul says, God has imprisoned all of us in disobedience that God may be merciful to all. In other words, God makes us this way. All of us, including me, the preacher of the sermon, including all of you, the good and the bad, the sinners and the saints. God has imprisoned all in disobedience. But God's purpose is not to put us to shame or destroy us. God, again, is not against us. God's mercy comes to us before our disobedience. Wesley calls it prevenient grace in that it comes prior to anything else. I think that's why God is so often portrayed as a shepherd because he knows that like sheep we're prone to wander. But it's a challenge to wrap our heads around this verse that God has made us this way that we are free to do whatever we please. Part of that freedom means we are free to rebel against God, to choose to do the things we know we shouldn't do. It's a gift, freedom. God is not a puppeteer up in the sky pulling every little string. God has set us free to do whatever we want. But freedom isn't freedom unless it's really free. We are free to do whatever we please. But what have we done with it? I think we don't like to confront the truth and the recklessness of our existence. We don't like to look in the mirror and see the truth. We don't want to be told we're disobedient. We don't want to be told we're miserable offenders. That's why we're much better about pointing out the faults in other people. I think we like to point out the faults in other people, not only because it's fun, but because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But in the church, things are a little different. We worship the one who is the way and the truth in the life, which means we are called to a life of honesty that otherwise we might not ever encounter. And part of what we do, all of this, is about confessing the truth, about admitting the condition of our condition. So when we stand and we sing or we pray or we listen to a sermon, it's not all that different than if we all stood up and said in unison together, we are all broken people. We are all idiots. And we will be idiots again. We're difficult to get along with. We sulk. We get angry. We blame other people for our own problems. We fail to compromise. We are not as nice as we think we are. We need all the help we can get. And yet we are here. We are here to fight against the loneliness that our failings tend to create. Can you imagine if at the end of the service I asked all of you to stand up, we have all been idiots and we will all be idiots again. It would be a strange sight to behold, but it would be true. It would be true. Because this is exactly who we are. Sinners in need of grace, the disobedient in need of mercy. Every one of us here has suffered the effects that our freedom has wrought the choices we make that make a mess of things, and not just as individuals, but as families, communities. We're poisoned with greed 
and jealousy and violence and discord and strife and selfishness of every variety. And so it's like Paul is grabbing and rattling the cages of our disobedience to tell us the gospel. It's as if he is saying, look, God is making sure that all of us experience what it's like to be on the outside so that God can be the one at the door who welcomes us back in. I think of every parable, of every story that Jesus tells, the one that we're the most familiar with is the parable of the prodigal. Jesus is asked about what the kingdom of God is like, and he says there's a man, and he has this son. And the son looks at his life, he looks at all that he has, and he looks at his dad, and he says, I just wish you would die. I wish you were dead right now. I don't want to wait around for my inheritance. I want it right now. And the dad says, okay. He gives up his vocation, his life, all of his money, and he hands it over to his kid, knowing exactly what he's going to do with it. Because what does the kid do with his inheritance come early? He goes to Atlantic City. He loses it all on one hand. He starts having to eat out of the garbage because he can't find anything else to eat. He has no money. The Gospel of Luke says it's only then when he's eating from the pig's trough that he comes to his senses and he realizes that even if he goes home to his father who will berate him and belittle him for what he did, it would be better than eating what the pigs are eating. And so he goes home and he's walking down the street to his father's house and his father sees him and runs outside and tackles him to the ground and he doesn't pummel him with punches, instead he covers him with kisses. He says, my boy, you're home. What wondrous news. You were dead, but you're alive. You were lost, but you're found. Guess what? We're having a party. We've got reason to celebrate. The son hasn't even said he's sorry yet before the father reaches out with love. God is that prodigal father. God is waiting in the streets of life, waiting to tackle us and knock us to the ground and clobber us with grace, with mercy. God is like the prodigal father, waiting to throw a party for one reason and one reason only. We are lost and we are found. Or, as Paul puts it, God has imprisoned all to disobedience that God may be merciful to all. Maybe we should do the same. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.